So like imagine um, being able to um, go in and like take a shot of nanites that are like little mini robots that could go and deliver um, medicine to specific pieces or parts of your body. So if you're thinking like uh, like cancer cells, right? That's huge. And <laughs> being able to deliver chemotherapy hits all of your cell, all the cells of your body. Imagine if you could just like poke uh, into a cancer cell, release um, whatever uh, uh, medicine or whatever uh, methodology that you want to do to reduce or, or destroy that cancer cell into just that targeted cancer cell, as opposed to affecting the whole body. Um, that's like an example, but nanites and nanotechnology, I really feel like in the future will be just stuff that is floating around our body and our bloodstream. Welcome everyone to another episode of Executive Health and Life. I'm your host, Julian Hayes II, where the goal is to have you maintain your edge and your status and ultimately be the CEO of your health and life. And today we are going to talk about the brain. The brain is, you know, I, I think about anatomy class during my brief time in medical school and i remember going to the cadaver and <laughs> playing with the brain and i was like wow you know all the little grooves and crests and the next thing i thought about for some reason is that this these things look like a walnut <laughs> and th then i looked up you know what's the walnuts are good for and i was like it's good for your brain and so then i started looking up other foods that are also shaped like different parts of the body and they connected with each other. Whether that's a coincidence or not, I have no idea. This just came to the top of mind as I'm making this intro. For those who don't know, my intros are totally just ad lib and I just make it up. But back to the brain here. You know, something when we think about aging is that we're afraid of losing our cognition as we take more trips mm -hmm. around the sun. And so today I'm talking with a guy who's a brain researcher and an entrepreneur. He's doing some really, really fascinating stuff. Very cutting edge. And he, it's, he is the co-founder of a company called Mind Brain Body Lab, which is utilizing neuroscience and AI to work alongside traditional therapy to help those that are healing from the effects of burnout, emotional abuse, breakups, and many other different types of quarter-life crisis and identity crisis that we can have. Essentially, he's here to help us rewrite and rise up. So I'm speaking with none other than Cody Isabel. Cody, how's it going today? It's going good. Thanks. Uh, I love the ad lib. I love the ad lib bio. It's uh, way more fun than uh, <laughs> the canned, like just read the script type thing. So that was good. Well, I appreciate that. You know, um, I've messed up a few times too and you just kept rolling with it right. I, you know i thought about taking an app lip or not an app lip class an improv class just hey. to even, just to even get more out of my comfort zone because one of the things for me is was i i was always told myself i was an introvert mm -hmm. and that i couldn't do certain things because you know that's not what i do and i was essentially programming and wiring my brain to be this person because i was i kept affirming what i am so as you know, so as we start here, I'm curious, how did you, you know, if we go back to eight year old Cody, did we know from that point on to present day that he was going to be a brain researcher and into AI and neurotech? <laughs> uh, I would say yes, for sure. I, uh, when I was really young, I, uh, I, I don't, I don't know what grade eight is. I forgot what grade that is. I just know in middle school or sorry, elementary school at some point, uh, there was a, uh, a, uh, 
like like a fair or like a, a exhibit, I guess, um, like a live exhibit of the human body that came through my middle school at St. John's, like out in, uh, I'm in KC, uh, Kansas City. And so um, it essentially what it was, was like a giant blow up human body and uh, you could walk through it essentially. So like, like one of those bouncy houses, it kind of was like that, except uh, it was like, you didn't, there's no bouncing. You walked through like a live uh, blow up version of the human body and you start at the top of the head and go through the brain. And so um, when I went through that, I noticed that the rest of the time walking through the rest of the body, there is these yellow little things like going all over the place inside the body. I was like, what, what the hell is this? Like, <laughs> and I noticed those first in the brain and the head, and then it went all through the body. And I was like, what the heck? And so that's when, that was the first time I learned what a neuron was or what nerves were. And I was just fascinated. I was like, this, we walked through this at the very beginning, but it's been with us the entire time we've been walking through this exhibit. So what the hell is this? Like, what is the nervous system? What are nerves? What is the brain? How does that work? Um, and I was fascinated from that point forward. Um, gotten some advanced classes in like some advanced uh, college classes in high school, even um, around the brain, um, around neuroscience. Um, and then um, took that all the way into college, um, get my degree in cognitive behavioral neuroscience. Um, and then <laughs> the rest is history. Uh, working with people in the brains has been uh, really, really fun, especially how like physiologically what's happening upstairs and in your nervous, in your mind, brain and body and how that affects your behavior and uh, mm -hmm. emotions and things like that. So I would say yes, uh, it for sure had to do with the brain. And then I've always been interested in technology um, as well. Um, it not necessarily, not always specifically like neurotechnology, biotechnology, things like that, but just tech and exponential technologies um, in the future. I'm extraordinarily, like I love superheroes, I love the future, I love Jarvis from Iron Man, all that kind of stuff. And so um, once I started to take that from like, understand that the comic books and sci-fi and that kind of stuff, a lot of the times they're like predicting the future. I'm like, okay, so what types of technologies could lead to the things that I love about um, in these stories and stuff like that? And that's when I really dove further into neurotechnology, um, uh, biotechnology, nanotechnology, and, and really integrating uh, like machine learning, AI, uh, deep learning, those types of things into what I'm doing. So, Interesting. Who's your, so is Iron Man your favorite superhero? Um, uh, on the Marvel side, maybe. I also like Doctor Strange. On the DC side, I'm a big Superman guy. I love Superman. Everybody's like, oh, he's overpowered. But I just love that. <laughs> and I think he's uh, I think he's badass. So I've always loved Superman. I'm more of a Batman person. And, uh, Fair enough. Yeah. I, I, my favorite Batman in the movies was Ben Affleck. That was like a dream to see on the screen. Wow. Because this – look, um, he was he was absolutely jacked, right? This oh, is yeah. how I wanted my Batman to be. He was a little broody, and he wasn't really that funny. And so I probably sound like a downer right now, but I don't like my superheroes – to be cracking jokes too much. They can throw nice. a little joke here and there. And so just the way that Batman was portrayed was mm -hmm. to me closer to the comic ones that I like. So that's why nice. I really I enjoy <laughs> that Batman. And also, you know, for me, Batman, Batman's just a, a dude with um mm -hmm. with like uh different tech and gadgets. And mm -hmm. you know, when I think about health and kind of what inspired me was that I was like he's just a normal dude that trains really hard and leverages tools. And so I was like, 
I can look at health like Batman and I'm going to leverage nice. all these, all these different, you know, vitamins, supplements, peptides, all this stuff to really enhance myself to the best of my ability. So I'm like, I'm Batman. I like that. You know, so that's, that's a good way to look at it. Yeah. And so I was curious. That's why I asked this because uh, you mentioned Jarvis and Iron Man and they're really big into the brain and technologies and, and, and I would say meshing those worlds together. Mm -hmm. in a very effective way. So nanotechnology, oh, yeah. for those who may not be familiar, what's nanotechnology? Uh, I mean, it's just like that. I mean, we're getting on the very edge of like what is like real, <laughs> but it's a type of biotechnology that like when people talk about uh, having little uh, like microscopic almost um, robots that can go in your body and start to heal and change your body. Um, so like imagine um, being able to um, go in and like take a shot of nanites that are like little mini robots that could go and deliver um, medicine to specific pieces or parts of your body. So if you're thinking like uh, like cancer cells, right? That's huge. <laughs> and being able to deliver chemotherapy hits all of your cell, all the cells of your body. Imagine if you could just like poke uh, into a cancer cell, release. Um, whatever uh, uh medicine or whatever uh, methodology that you want to do to reduce or, or destroy that cancer cell into just that targeted cancer cell as opposed to affecting the whole body um that's like an example but nanites and nanotechnology i really feel like in the future will be just stuff that is floating around our body in our bloodstream um that will be able to do anything from ibuprofen up to like actual like uh, vaccines, maybe <laughs> that could get controversial for people, but uh, vaccines <laughs> or um, uh, just even antiviral, like mm -hmm. different types of medicines and stuff that could be released into our bodies in measurement. Like what's happening? What is your blood? Like how hard is it right now to get your blood glucose? Like I partner with Nutrisense, so I have a patch that can get my blood glucose, but not everybody has that. And right now it's a patch. In the future, it will be something that's floating in our blood that will already be able to give us all of the data on our blood. We'll know our cholesterol. We'll know all of these things already because those types of things are floating around in our body. Kind of creepy, but I think Creep, cool. <laughs> creepy, but cool. I, I like that. That's some real life Marvel DC stuff right there, right? It is. You know, yeah, like, it is. I, I, like you know, you know, I, I could use that to to heal a sore foot right now, so I can be at one hundred percent when I go for my run later today. I'm a little inflamed in my elbow. These these nanobots, they can go in there, work their magic. My elbow feels like new, and I can go do my bench like I want to do with the barbell at the weight I want without any elbow pain. That's I, right. I I'm sold on that. The only thing I worry about, okay, so like I only I only <laughs> know if we have the answer. That's really yet. future tech. So yeah. I mean, I, I'm not working on I'm not doing a lot with nano myself at the yeah. moment, but I know about it. Yeah, the only thing I, I I'm curious, which we probably don't even have fully the answer yet, is like. Who controls that? You know, mm -hmm. yeah, it's, 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 I love that it, question, though. It, you know, it's tech and everything. So, like, who controls that? And because it's getting more data into us, so I think that will be the only thing I would have to say. Okay, who controls this and has access to this? And can you like turn it on and off? You know, and, and things like that. But this is me just with my. I'm putting. My, I don't have a tinfoil hat. This is just me if I'm putting my tinfoil hat on, and I wanted to think about worst case scenarios because. But you know, there's a great book. It's a legitimate I read. question. <laughs> There's a great book I read. It's called Only the Paranoid Survive. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and so you, you have to stay a little a little healthy paranoia is good for you. Yeah, man, it's a good question. Our data is a big, 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 big question right now. When you think mm -hmm. about AI, um, which is 
like nano, nano, nanobots, neurotechnology that like Neuralink that'll be in your brain. Like mm -hmm. those are years away probably. Um, but AI is here today. Um, and the data question is still hugely important for AI even because um, the like ChatGPT and all these uh, language models or like uh, uh, AI models that you see um, are trained on data. Um, and <laughs> that's the future from my perspective is data. And so data privacy, data protection for consumers, I think will become more and more important. And right now, like individual Cody and uh, Julian don't have much sway in what we are, how we, our data is used. Because if we go, if I go to Google or I go to Facebook as me individually, Cody by himself, and I'm like, hey, I don't like this, blah, 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 like change and make this different, blah, whatever. Um, that's one ant out of a, out of uh, billions that, and Facebook's just like, yeah, I don't care. But in the future, I really think there will be things like uh, data unions or uh, uh, data DAOs, like decentralized autonomous organizations that um, where it's not just me or it's not just you, but now we have, what if we got a billion people in this data union? I don't know a better word than union at the current moment. And now collectively, we go to Facebook with 3 billion of its users and we say, hey, this is what our terms are for you to be able to use our data. And uh, that is voted on by the entire community. Um, and you can kind of pick and choose what data guild or data union, whatever you want to be a part of and how your data then is used. And then companies can interact. Um, but it gives us more collective bargaining with these giant corporations and future ones as well. Um, not just for AI, which is today, but nanotechnology, neurotechnology, biotechnology, so that we have more of a say um, on what's happening with our data <laughs> uh, collectively. Mm -hmm. And then I think the technology providers will need to do some cool stuff. Like I'm very interested in data protection. Like how can, like Apple stores your data on, mm -hmm. on device in a chip on your phone that's technically yours. Still a little bit, most consumers probably don't understand that or know why that matters or anything. But I've even thought about having like a personalized blockchain that can store your memories um, that's encrypted with like your, you are the one with the encryption key and you're the only one who can access something like that. I don't know. There's a lot of different ways that, that I've kind of thought about the data question, but it's an interesting one. Yeah, it's a very important one as well. And, um, you know, I think about this, we'll, we'll jump over a little bit. Um, I'll go to the future a little bit and then we'll come back to kind of some stuff in the present. You know, I, I hear about, um, all of these different technologies and we even talked about this previously before off off um off camera about um some of the cool interventions and technology out there and a lot of it is pretty pricey right now so a lot of people are priced out of it and so mm -hmm. one thing that, that caught my interest was that you're you know you know one of the, the things that you are working on and have a vision for it is to create human affordable or, or affordable human machine nanotechnology devices and software tools so i I guess my question here is how is that an issue of scaling then how do you how do you like how would you be able to accomplish that if it's kind of very pricey uh technology in there yeah that's I mean, a good point uh the tech like hardware the hardware side um there's a lot that goes into that um, i haven't even probably started attacking that issue or problem yet mm -hmm. um the software side is a little bit different um, there's some cool models like we're doing, uh, and that's where I'm way more focused right now is like software and AI side. Hardware is something that I think will come in the future. Um, mm -hmm. there's a lot of R and D research and development that needs to happen on college campuses and universities and things like that to actually make it possible. But big picture, if you think of something like Squarespace or you think of something, uh, or not Squarespace, sorry, uh, Square, the little card reader, mm -hmm. the story of how they were created 
um, is similar. And when you think of like uh, Henry Ford, like I, I read, I read a ton of autobiographies and biographies. I love them. Uh, but when you think of like Henry Ford, you think of Microsoft, you think of these companies that got things to the mass market, D to C, or like uh, direct to consumer to the consumer market. Um, they are uh, figuring out ways to keep it cheap and effective. And something mm -hmm. even Henry Ford said is like, it's not an innovation if poor people can't afford it. If not mm -hmm. everyone can afford it, it's not innovation. So how do you get to that place? Um, so the Square Card Reader did the same thing for small business owners and uh, um, uh, like entrepreneurs. Um, they couldn't get business credit cards. Like they couldn't get a line of credit. Um, and so when people would cut like your local glass blower or whatever, um, couldn't accept a credit card. So they were missing out on thousands and thousands of dollars of sales because people had to use cash. And if you couldn't accept a credit card, then they would just walk out of your store. Square was like, well, why is no one servicing that market? And so what Square realized is that um, these giant corporations were attacking the very top tier, like the billionaires, the multimillionaires, the millionaires, but they were missing out on the mass market, which mm -hmm. had like 10 times the amount of people and consumers inside of that bottom layer of the pyramid. Um, and they did not understand that if they could create a solution for the mass market, that would create um, like economics of scale or uh, they'd be able to scale that um, in a way because if one person, if a billion people pay you $1, that's a billion dollars. Mm -hmm. um, and the credit cards companies didn't necessarily understand that or see that, or they missed out on that opportunity. Square didn't miss out on that. Same thing with Henry Ford, same thing with Microsoft and um, some of these early innovators that are trying to get stuff to, to the mass market. So I'm trying to follow in their footsteps um, and, try and trying to use um, patterns and things that people have already used to take stuff to the market um, and trying to deliver something that's extraordinarily high quality um, for a lower cost, like Amazon does this too, um, and be able to get to a large mass market. Um, the first way I'm doing that is um, uh, content. That's an easy way to do it. So I do a lot of content where I'm teaching people stuff for free. Um, mm -hmm. So that's one way. And then soon we'll have a digital product. And so the specific way that we're, we're creating an, like an AI companion, like a Jarvis, if we're sticking with the superheroes uh, from Iron Man, an AI companion for between therapy sessions um, that can help people. Uh, regulate their nervous system, um, talk through traumatic things, uh, listen, understand, and validate them. Um, and it's a little, like a little companion avatar that um, is like your little buddy. Um, and the goal with that is to not charge for it. Like my, I want to do like a pay what you can model. Um, we're technically incorporated as a public benefit company, um, mm -hmm. meaning that I am not solely focused on shareholder value. I am focused on serving the public and creating something of massive value to the public and helping them. And so um, that's kind of the way that I'm focused on right now is being able to create a model that is like either pay what you can or just completely, totally free uh, where the, I like to pay what you can model because it's like, okay, if Julian can afford to pay 30 bucks a month so that he can pay for four other people's memberships or whatever on the app. Um, awesome. Um, then for people that can't afford mental health care at the current moment could get those services for free. Um, and I kind of like that because it kind of brings together more of a community vibe and like a joint mission um, and not just free. So I don't know. I'm working on that and trying to figure out how to do that. But that's uh, those are some of the ways that I'm that was a long way to say some of the ways that I'm trying to solve that problem. So, or, yeah. Yeah. so um, what um, what was the inspiration around mental health? I know that's I know that's very important to you. So for yeah. sure, uh, mental health has been first of all, I've always uh, <laughs> 
loved, but uh, studying cognitive behavioral neuroscience, um, there's a lot of, I got to understand the neuroscience of what's happening in a lot of these um, mental illnesses, mental health, that kind of stuff. Um, I've had, um, I've started a couple companies and uh, probably took too much on all at once. Um, and starting a company is stressful. And I was struggling with anxiety myself and just like, I started having panic attacks and all sorts of stuff. I was like, what the hell? Um, so it's affected me personally. And then one of my best friends struggles with, um, or has struggled in the past with some mental illness um, type things I've had to, it, it's been tough to see um, what he's had to go through and some of that kind of stuff. So um, that's really where it came from. Um, and then being able to help people with their mental and emotional health, um, as far as the confidence and helping them um, heal some of those past wounds uh, has been something I've been passionate about since I was young, um, younger, even my high school, college. Um, that's probably where it all started um, because my own mental and emotional health, like my social skills, my confidence, like those types of things were very, very bad mm-hmm. <laughs> when I was in like high school. And then in college, when I transitioned to college, I, uh, I, I created this persona called Izzy <laughs> uh, based after my <laughs> uncle. Uh, whose uncle Aaron is his name, but mm-hmm. Izzy is the nickname he used. Um, it's like a family nickname. Michael's a badass. He was in Vietnam. Like he uh, like was the dude that like breached first. And then when he's around my family, when he walks in the room, everybody listens. Like he takes action. Like he, he's a badass. I love him. Um, and so I met with him right before I went to college. And I was like this, like lanky, like I'm a pretty tall guy, like, but I was lanky, no muscle, like acne, like no facial hair, like just a just an awkward phase. Um, and I presented awkwardly and couldn't talk to people and wasn't like competent necessarily. And so uh, I, in college, when the first day of college, I got there and I was like, hey, uh, everybody's like, who are you? Essentially, like it's uh, orientation. I was like, hey, my name's Cody Isabel, but everybody calls me Izzy. And so I just transitioned to, I'm gonna become Izzy. And that persona instantly gave me the, the, the bravado and the confidence of my uncle. And so Izzy allowed me and helped me do a lot of cool stuff. Um, stuff that I would not have done as Cody necessarily. Um, and I grew into that. Now I have those powers, those superpowers internally, um, but I learned them by being someone else, mm. right? Izzy. And so um, that's the first moment that I was like, oh my God, like this, you're, you're, you're having this alter ego, uh, having this new uh, uh, identity can really help with mental and emotional health. I started to research that and started to look into um, multiple personality, um, multiple self theory, um, internal family systems, which is a type of psychotherapy I'm trained in, um, and kind of looking at subpersonalities and how our identities and our personalities and our identity, like how it all meshes together and how it works together, um, how they can help with behavioral change, mental and emotional health. So that's probably where it, it, a lot of it stemmed from. All of those different pieces is what I would say. That's very interesting because I too created an alter ego. You know, that's one of the things oh, I yeah. learned when I, when I went to therapy is um, I started to started to create an alter ego for myself. Oh, yes. And, yes. Um, and to, 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 to do that. So uh, I really loved hearing that because an alter ego is a person that, you know, I say that if, if this Julie can't do it, you know, this alter, my alter ego can. He, he'll pick up the slack in this department. He's he's a he's a lot more tougher than me. He's, he's a lot more, he's a, you know, I needed the toughness and the, the, the confidence and the swagger, you know, that yeah. my, that my other person didn't have. Yeah. He may have had the intellect, but he didn't have that swagger and, and charisma and confidence and edge to mm-hmm. himself. And so, Hell yeah. um, so I, I definitely dig that, you know, I, you know, as we get ready to start diving into the brain, I, um, by the way, you create a lot of content. <laughs> yeah, I do. I yeah. Do. Like you, like 
I'll have this in the show notes, but people, you, you got to go to his, um, you got to go to their Instagram page because they are creating consistently very, very high quality content. So, um, like <laughs> it was, it was almost too much when I was researching you, but, um, you know, but I found a basic, <laughs> I, I found a, a simple article to kind of get it started where you talked about, and, this, and you went very viral on this post as well. You talked about five activities, to keep the brain healthy. Now listeners mm-hmm. know, um, sleep. We're pretty aware of that. We might dive into that a little bit. We know meditation. We know exercise. We know limiting alcohol. And um, But the fifth one was what was very interesting. You mentioned becoming more actively decisive. And your quote was, our brains are made to decide things and act things. And we learn through failure. And then the process of, of act, access, and adjust helps improve overall brain health. It's a very interesting one. Now, how did you come up with that? Was that through experience or through research? Uh, both, honestly. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, uh, research first, like understanding and learning how the brain learns, how memories are formed. Uh, failure is literally a neuroplastic trigger. Um, like the way your brain triggers neuroplasticity is through failure and through errors. Error is the more scientific word, but mm-hmm. error or or failure. Um, and then when you look at um, as someone who's studied science pretty deeply, I'm sure you're familiar with the scientific method. Um, if you look at act, assess, adjust, that is the scientific method. I, I've simplified it down a lot for the general public so people can understand it. But at its core is the scientific method, um, which the scientific method is like, what's my hypothesis? What mm-hmm. do I think is going to happen? Or like, what, like, what's my research question? Like, I have this thing, this phenomenon is happening. What's my research question? What's my hypothesis about why it's happening? How am I going to test that? Go test it. Review your results. What happened? Was my hypothesis supported or not? And then uh, going and uh, adjusting and uh, shifting uh, your hypothesis based on the results and then going and experiment again. That's the scientific method. Act, mm-hmm. assess, adjust is a scientific method for the average consumer um, or the average person <laughs> that you can use in your life. Um, and so that's kind of where access adjust came from. And then the learning and the uh, becoming more decisive. Um, it's just a lot of what I see when I work with people is they're stuck, whether it's with confidence or after trauma. Um, action is a really, really hard concept for people to understand and getting into action. Um, and I feel like it's a lot of times because they think action is one thing. Um, it's not a uh, they just think I have to just act and that's it. Um, and they're worried about failure. When I act, I fail. If I fail, then I, that sucks. It's not a fun feeling. But if you have the concept that you act, assess and adjust, that it's feedback, not failure at all times. Like it's a feedback loop. And so, um, I talk about that a lot. Um, and that's what your brain is literally made to do. Like we all, I think like the most common example of this is everybody learns how to walk by falling on their ass a ton of times. Mm -hmm. Why do we stop doing that? Right? Like you use that process as a child, um, society then starts to, and you can see this in school data, society starts to guilt and shame and humiliate and, and things like that in relation to getting things wrong and not being right, not being perfect. Um, and so we forget this core mechanism of learning that lives in our nervous system, which is act as just adjust. Um, and <laughs> we stop doing it. We stop learning and we stop acting. We stop being decisive because we feel like making this decision means the end of the world. When in reality, all it means is that right now you're going to act and do this thing. Then you're going to say, oh, that did that work. Shit. <laughs> and then reassess, act again, adjust, and then uh, act again. Um, if that's the concept, then, then action is not as scary because you always have the ability. Like I can't even think of a single example of time that I failed, <laughs> that I wasn't able to assess the issue, 
adjust yeah. and then act again. I, it's never, ever, ever been something I haven't been able to do. So. And so you mentioned neuroplasticity in case for those not familiar with neuroplasticity, what's a, just an easy way to think about neuroplasticity. Just the, your brain's ability to learn and grow. So mm -hmm. like, like you can read a book and learn something new today and remember it tomorrow. Um, your brain's changed, your brain changed and the neural network of your brain changed as you learn that. Um, even as you're listening to this podcast, your brain is changing. Um, the neural connections are shifting and changing. That's uh, neuroplasticity. It's just your brain's ability to adapt and grow over time. And then, um, so I imagine then that's where sleep comes into play as well, right? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Sleep is, uh, sleep literally is, without sleep you could not learn. And so what happens, uh, so what happens when you're learning is you release a whole slew of cool little chemicals uh, that help you uh, 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 form that memory. So when you are learning, there's a certain set of neurons that are firing, a certain pattern of neurons that are firing in relation to the task or the thing you're trying to learn. Acetylcholine, when you start to error, when you start to guess wrong, when you start to not be able to piece things together, that error triggers, triggers acetylcholine to be released. And it acts like a spotlight on those neurons that are that firing pattern um, of neurons that are firing while you're learning. Acetylcholine spotlights them. Epinephrine um, is also in there, helps you um, with like focus and, and drive to, to keep going. And then dopamine comes in and like lays down its tracks on those lit up neurons. Um, and it marks those neurons for change um, to be reconsolidated essentially. And so then what happens is if you do not sleep, <laughs> those connections fall apart. But when you sleep, uh, what happens is actually kind of cool. Like when you dream, a lot of the times you can see the reverse pattern in your brain fire. So if you fire ABC while you're learning it in your dreams, it's CBA. Um, essentially that it will, you can see it in people's brains and brain skin and stuff. Doesn't matter. Point being is while you're sleeping, um, your nerve cells come in and they find the acetylcholine that has marked the neural pathway that you just lit up while you were learning. And then it consolidates those and sears in those, like if they were like loose connections like this, now it mm -hmm. sears them in and locks them into an actual new neural network, a new neural pathway in your brain as you're sleeping. Um, and so sleep is so freaking important for learning memory um, and focus and attention. Uh, because if you don't sleep, first of all, you don't have enough acetylcholine, norepinephrine, epinephrine, um, dopamine to help you learn while you're awake. And so that's bad for focus and attention and learning. And then if you don't sleep, you don't reconsolidate your memories in the same way. So then you won't remember what you learned as well. Um, so yeah, sleep is huge um, in relation to learning. Like you have to sleep to learn. Now uh, with, with dopamine, are we, are we, um, a lot of these devices and everything now, is that giving us, um, is that kind of messing with our dopamine, dopamine pathways in terms of like just getting hits of dopamine way too much now? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I, they, yeah, it's extraordinarily in the in the literature, it's like very clear <laughs> that our dopamine. Uh, Doctor Anna Lemke wrote a book called Dopamine Nation. Love her to death. She was on Doctor Andrew Huberman's podcast. She's been all over the place. But Dopamine Nation, um, she dives like so deep into this topic. It's not even funny. She talks about something called a pleasure pain balance. And if you think of it like a little teeter totter. Every time that you release a, a like, let's pretend it's just uh, 10 units of dopamine, just random, whatever units. Okay. Um, if you release 10 units of dopamine after that, there are 10 units of pain that are released as well. So when you release dopamine, you have to release a similar amount of 
pain chemicals um, like this, like uh, there's like after you eat a bowl of ice cream, right? Mm -hmm. There's like a, like a level of uh, like almost pain that urges you to take another bite or you take one bite of a cookie. What makes you take that next bite? Well, it's that small amount of almost like pain or discomfort. That's like, ah, I really want that. Um, And that is, that's this mechanism at play, this pleasure pain balance. And so when we are hyper dopamined up, um, like social media, drugs, sex, porn, all sorts of stuff like that shoots your dopamine levels up. Guess what? <laughs> you have to have an equal and opposite reaction of pain in relation to dopamine. Um, and so when you look at the United States, we are the most stressed, depressed, and anxious of all countries. And we also have the most dopaminergic type activities in our society, in our food, like so much sugar in our food, um, on our social media, um, in like the general media, our activities, like, like we have extreme stuff that we do and extreme things that we talk about, um, which shoots up our dopamine and it messes that it then messes up that pleasure, pleasure, pain balance. And so then we're more stressed, depressed, and anxious than anyone else. And it makes complete sense. Um, neurobiologically what's happening societally. And that's the argument she makes in this book. And I am a hundred percent a firm believer in that, like without a doubt. Wow. <laughs> it's wild. It's, it's, uh, that, that, it's, it's wild. That is wild. And so, you know, that's affecting our focus and our attention yep. spans and, and our performance across the board. And a lot of times, mm-hmm. and isn't that's also desensitizing us to a lot of like nominal experiences, right? Isn't that the reason why people have to continually amp up things just to feel something throughout the, the months and incoming years is because they're, their, their dopamine is essentially shot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I mean, literally their threshold for um, getting the same pleasure, they get desensitized to it. Literally. I mean, um, it's an addiction loop. <laughs> wow. I, I need to do, uh, I think I want to do an anti dopamine diet. Oh yeah. Uh, she, <laughs> is, it, uh, is, Dr. That, Lempe, is that such a thing? Oh yeah, it is. Dr. Okay. Anna Lempe in her book, she gives a protocol called dopamine and it's a 30 day dopamine detox to okay. reset your pleasure pain balance. And you can absolutely do this hundred percent. Um, there's some caveat she gives, like, for example, like, like benzodiazepines or alcohol, you've mm-hmm. got to be extraordinarily careful with, with those. Those are very, like they send a lot of dopamine, but you've got to be really careful like when you're withdrawing from some of that stuff. That's not the same as like coming off of like, like sugar or like uh like if you're like watching too much porn or something like that yeah. that's different than alcohol alcohol can truly like can kill you withdrawing so to give some some uh some tips on how to do that in a framework literally called dopamine um so it's kind of cool damn so if somebody's really drinking a lot and they just go cold turkey with alcohol it can it can, it can kill them oh yeah yeah damn. yeah yeah 100 percent. like alcohol withdrawal is uh very, very, very uh, dangerous. Yeah. Um, uh, to same thing with benzos. A lot mm-hmm. of the time, like strong benzo diet. Like uh, Jordan Peterson. I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but mm-hmm. <laughs> again, maybe a confidential guy. But uh, he uh, went off some benzodiazepines, and it took years for him to get off of those. It, like medically, had to be a, wa- observed in a hospital to get off of some of these drugs. Um, alcohol similar to that, but yeah. If you're uh, coming off something like that, absolutely, please, God, do that with a medical professional at your side. Wow. Yeah, I'm glad you. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned that because um, a lot of times you just hear, "Hey, I'm just going to stop and, and and stop." I know. I know. I've heard of alcohol. You heard of alcohol anonymous and the twelve step programs and stuff, but um, I didn't know it was just that serious that you can lose your life from alcohol. If you 
um, have a serious dependency to it. Wow. The yeah, body... yeah, that's that's a big disclaimer. It's like if you yeah. were addicted to alcohol, it's not yeah. like the person that's like just a random college person or whatever, yeah. like binge drinking. That, like that's that's different. Um, I'm, I'm talking like someone that is like dependent on it, daily yeah. drinking, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. So yeah, you know, and, and this is a pretty good segue to, to move on to other things that our brains kind of become dependent on or that really affects our brain. One of those is trauma. And, you know, when I hear trauma, uh, sometimes I feel like it's being overused Mm. just the way that, um, I don't think it, I think the way we think about trauma probably Mm. doesn't have much like aging. I think we, I think it's been too watered and just messed up. So trauma, what do you, when you hear trauma, what's, how do you talk about trauma with people? Yeah. So there, I mean, there's tons of ways to slice it. Uh, there's big T trauma, little T trauma, uh, like big T trauma being things like, um, neglect at childhood or abuse, like verbal abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, um, like, like being sexually assaulted. That's like big T trauma can be, um, also seeing your buddy at war blown up next to you. That could be big T trauma. Little T trauma, um, is, can be more like over time. Um, it can be more, um, uh, less like, uh, there's a lot of people, um, that if they grow up super religious, there's some little T trauma sometimes that can come up in relation to like guilt and shame. Um, there's, uh, so that's like one way to slice it. The, the easiest way that I like to slice it is with the three E's. I talk about this a lot. Um, and the E's are event experience and effect. Um, and so if you think about um, what could be traumatic for you may not be for me. Um, and it can build some empathy, um, from my perspective in understanding what is trauma <laughs> because it's such a crazy overused word. I agree. Yeah. So when you're thinking about, um, let's pretend, um, like a house fire, for example, um, if it's your house, right, that event of the house fire, you might experience, um, some anxiety, some, some, um, nervousness, like some terror, some fear, because you've got to go get the kids, you got to go uh, uh, get all your stuff out, your stuff's burning down. And then the effect of that experience and that event could be tra- traumatic, PTSD, stress, anxiety, things like that afterwards. However, if you're a firefighter, the same event is experienced completely differently. If you're a firefighter, that a house fire is a very common event. And it's maybe the fourth house fire you've gone to in that night or day, right? And so you experience that house fire completely differently. For someone who is a firefighter, they might have the effect of that event and experience might build resilience and might help them um, learn how to navigate that more effectively, which is completely different than um, how the person whose house is on fire experienced that. So one is considered, could be considered trauma, and the other is building resilience. Um, not to say that firefighters and, and things like that don't experience trauma. They absolutely do. Um, but just for benefit of kind of understanding what trauma is, um, that's that's an easy way to kind of understand it. Um, I like that. I like that. Um, I, I like that whole differentiation and segmentation there. And then also the three E's and then also leading to better, um, more compassion. I think some of the traumas I hear sometimes in C is usually the micro, 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 micro traumas mm-hmm. that you know, and I think, I think my thing is like a lot of those micro, micro, micro ones tend to overshadow some of the more serious ones, the big T's, like you mentioned, and even the mm. small T's. 
And I think that's where I think my initial thinking was from. So I like that distinct that um, you distinguishing that. And um, so I'm curious. So you're the process, the protocol, the process um, in you can't go through it all, obviously. But um, so when you, someone is coming with trauma and getting ready to, and attempting to heal that, how are you combining the AI component with traditional therapy? So the way to think about there's a couple ways. Uh, big picture understanding trauma neurobiologically is important um, to understand how this works. And so if you think of your mind, your brain, and your body as three separate things that are inseparable, which is mm -hmm. kind of a, a conundrum, um, but most people have kind of a, a basic understanding that your mind, your brain, and your body are kind of different things. Um, and so what happens in trauma is that there's senses, things that come in through your body um, through your brain into your mind and your mind is like, Oh shit, this, this is intense. I can't handle this. I cannot cope with this. Um, which is another way to define trauma, like something that escapes your ability to cope. Like, like you don't have coping mechanisms to handle what it, you're experiencing. Um, and so your mind is like, Holy crap, I can't deal with this. And so then your mind goes back to your brain is like, Hey, I can't deal with this. Hold on to this memory. Hold on to this, these emotions for me. And the brain is like, well, I have nerve cells. I have no place to store this information. I can't keep this in nerve cells. Um, so I have to send this back down to the body. And so then your brain then sends signals through your hypothalamus, through your endocrine system, through your immune system, back down and shoves that trauma into your body. Um, and so it can be stored in your muscles, your fascia, like the, like the interconnection, the, 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 the matrix that connects all of your organs, muscles, and cells, um, which is your fascia. And then um, it can be in your skin, things like that. And so it shoves these traumas and these traumatic memories back into our bodies. Um, and so that's really important to understand in relation to trauma is that there's a lot going on. Trauma stored in your body. It's remembered, it's stored, it's felt in your body. Um, and that's huge to remember uh, because a lot of traditional therapy, um, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, dialect behavioral therapy, um, if they're not trauma informed, a lot of the times they'll have people just reliving their memories um, and talking about um, what's happening in their mind. But what's the problem with trying to talk and heal trauma with just going to the mind? <laughs> it's stored in the body. And so when you're working through the mind, um, there's only one type of memory in the mind, which is like declarative. Like I talked with Julian, um, I or I got on with Julian, I talked with him and then I got off. That's mm -hmm. declarative, like forward progress memory. I can do that in my mind in my prefrontal cortex. However, trauma stored in my body, which is non-declarative, meaning I can feel it. I can sense it. I, uh, 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 emotions come up from my body into my experience, but I can't necessarily like talk about it always. Um, and so when you are doing traditional types therapies and you're going top down, working just in the mind to talk through this stuff and this trauma, um, it's sometimes, especially for trauma, it's not always effective. Um, just doing talk therapy alone, uh, working in a modality that works with the body is super, super important. Um, because it, that's how you actually release trauma and it's how you release your, the grip of trauma on your psychology. Um, the way I like to think about it is trauma. Imagine your body like the soil for your brain and your brain like the soil for your mind. So trauma gets stored in your body and it creates a toxic environment, toxic soil, essentially. That means your brain is planted in toxic soil. So your brain becomes inflamed, um, low grade brain inflammation. Um, that low-grade brain inflammation creates toxic soil in your brain, 
which your mind is sitting in. And so then your mind, guess what? Anxiety, stress, depression, memory loss, mood swings, brain fog, all the stuff um, because of this bottom up process of uh, unfertile or like not healthy soil that everything's planted in. And so when you're working bottom up um, to heal trauma, you start to work in the body first to refertilize the soil of your body so that your brain can start to get healthier so that your mind can then become healthier and ready to actually process what's stored in your body. Um, and so that's, that's really important to understand um, in relation to healing trauma. And that's the methodology that we use. I use something called internal family systems is what I'm trained in. Um, and it's a, a bottom up strategy or methodology. It's a type of psychotherapy um, that helps people uh, process what's stored in their body um, and uh, not just re-experience it, but witness it and be with the part of you that experienced that trauma so that it can then release that trauma in a non-triggered way, um, in a non-sympathetic, like hyper fight or flight type way um, where it doesn't have access to beginning, middle, end type memory. Um, and so being able to reprocess and, and witness and work with those parts that experience that trauma is huge. Um, probably wondering where does AI and biometrics come in this? So all this stuff is stored in your body. Um, and that's why I had to give all that information to help you understand why like a biometric device, like a whoop, um, can help, uh, with, um, with this stuff, because, uh, what's happened, all this trauma is stored in your body. And so when I am measuring, like I can see when you get anxious, your heart rate variability shifts, your heart rate changes, your body temperature changes, your blood oxygen changes, your sleep patterns change, your stress levels change. All of this, these data points can be collected through biometric devices like Apple Watches or Whoops and stuff, mm -hmm. or and your blood glucose changes, like a NutriSense can um, change, detect blood glucose changes. Um, and then that can be objectively measured, um, analyzed, and then there's insights that can be drawn from that type of objective measurement and stuff. And so that's a humongous piece of uh, that's, that's how we get the data, how we use the data, those types of things uh, when we're working with people. So we have an objective measurement of their like mental and emotional health using biometric devices. We have a behavioral measurement, like a subjective report when I'm working with someone. Um, and then I combine the two of those things to help uh, uh, help them improve their mental and emotional health with, through our programs and things, the stuff that I help people through. So that's kind of, uh, that's kind of how we help people with those things. And then the AI component comes in and analyzing that by itself. So, yeah, I just pulled up my phone to look at my whoop and, uh, to look at my, okay. uh, my data right now to see. And, uh, so, um, it has a new stress monitor on there mm -hmm. and Love it. That, yeah, that's pretty cool. And so I'm at a medium right now Nice. while we're talking and, um, and, and my uh, heart rate is about 66 right now. So it's a little higher than normal because, you know, I'm, you know, you're doing activity, you're using your brain. But the point being here is that a lot of times you don't really know if you're, if you're stressing. This is a, even in more extreme examples. You don't know if you're stressing. Yeah. A lot of times, sometimes you, you, just because you don't necessarily see it doesn't mean nothing is happening. Mm -hmm. you know, and, yeah. and and uh, another point that you made there was um there's a book I, i'm pretty sure you, it's called the body keep score oh yeah that's what yeah yeah. That. yeah the body keep score that's a very good book to read on this and uh, yes very very good you know it's crazy to think about that you know if you tell someone at first that you know some of the some of your past events and and obstacles and failures and Un unfortunate events um it did, it's not just in your head it's um it's in, a, it's in your back or it's in your stomach or it's your acid reflux 
and everything to be like, what are you talking about? You know, this is a, this is from X and X thing because this happened. It's like, no, um, a, a lot of times our mind can make us sick. Our mind can mm. stress us and lead and manifest. So this manifesting can be from those types of things. And so a lot of times, do you have to get buy-in or do most of the people come to, you know, that these things are completely legit? More and more, honestly, people are, are, are realizing and coming to uh, the realization either through my content or other things they're reading that these mm -hmm. things are legit. That's a huge focus of my content is to help people understand this exact thing and how much science and research is behind this. Like there's a ton of neurobiological mechanisms behind um, this concept. And I'm very, very passionate about pushing that out. So more and more people do come to me more open to this concept. Um, and more and more people are realizing that, hey, my talk therapy wasn't working. I mean, I get a lot of people that just come to me, like talking about my trauma and talking about this wasn't working. I need to try something different. And so whether it's good or bad, they are coming to me with the perspective of, I need to try something different. What I tried did not work. Um, and they're at a point where they do believe in it because it, they've tried everything else mm -hmm. and they're at the end of the line and they're like, okay, screw it. I need to sub submit to this concept. And when they do, um, it's very, very um, effective and, and, and um, therapeutic. So um, some people come with an open perspective. Mm -hmm. Other people, you've got to help them experience it, <laughs> um, which I can do. You can do. Like, it, like it, th th this stuff is true. It's not magic. It's not like uh, – <laughs> it's, no, it's, it's not, not uh, Fugazi stuff. Like uh, I can walk them through a convert. Like I can help them talk to a part of themselves in their body. And when they feel that and have that conversation, they're like, holy shit. And their eyes are kind of opened um, to the stuff. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, as we get ready to wind this down, I want to uh, kind of what are a couple steps that people could do today to kind of take control of their brain more? Uh, and I, I'll use a broad term in case some people are, some people may have some trauma to heal, some people may have some anxiety, some depression. They're kind of related, but they're not related, right? And so, what are some kind of just bigger things that we can do to kind of take control of our brains? Uh, for sure. So the, again, I'm a huge bottom up guy. So the first step I take with all of my clients um, and people that I work with is something I call the hero's body, which is a framework that I use to help people um, balance out and fertilize the soil of their body so that they are even ready to start doing some of this work. Um, and so that's something for your mind every day, sleep, uh, maximizing and getting good sleep, exercise, nutrition, social connection and play. So it's six areas. Um, and having a healthy habit pattern routine in each of those areas is super, super, super like th that's where research has shown. If you have good habits, routines in these areas, uh, your mental and emotional health will, will improve, uh, most significantly. So I suggest people try an MVP or something I call, which is a minimum vital production, um, for each of those six areas. Um, which is like a, an MVP is like a laughable version of what you want to do big picture. So if you want to go on a mile run um, for your exercise, um, that could be like your, your standard or your goal or whatever. Mm -hmm. But then your MVP could be, I'm going to go walk a lap around my apartment building. Or if that's too much of a, because I work people with depression sometimes. For them, sometimes exercise is literally sitting up on their elbow in their bed. So I, I, I literally, or sometimes I've had people do one push-up. I helped somebody lose 300 pounds starting with one push-up, one sit-up, and one squat. That wow. was it. And it was the first time anyone had ever said, given him a realistic thing to achieve. And I trained him to, yeah, I didn't, he trained himself. <laughs> um, I suggested and helped him, but he trained himself to show up for himself by doing one push-up, sit-up. And he's like, dude, 
I, this is easy. I can do this easy uh, now. I was like, perfect. Could you start doing three? And he's like, yeah, I can do that. Um, and I started really, really realistic and worked him to getting to the gym, but he couldn't start there. Every other person he's worked with um, in the exercise realm, which is yeah. interesting when you look at data, uh, therapists and like uh, mental health counselors actually mm -hmm. help people lose more weight than uh, exercise scientists or like uh, dietitians sometimes, or not sometimes, statistically data wise, they do. So it's really interesting. That's an interesting data point. I'm not trying to blame no, anybody. I'm just, I, I just interesting. I can believe that. You know, I can believe that because a lot of times um, I, I'm guilty of, you know, I think about when I first started personal training and, and, and everything when I was working at a gym and I had a way of going about things. I was very dictatorial. Uh, you know, being from involved in athletics, I treated people like that. Now I had a very like militarist style to go about things and I wasn't compassionate. I, I didn't read on books yet and everything, you know, I didn't care. It's like, you're here, do this thing, do it now. How don't you, I, how, it's so easy. It's so easy to do all these things. Like how, how can you not? And right. so, um, you didn't have that compassion, that worldview and a lot of exercise scientists, we live in a bubble, just like in the world of the anti-aging longevity performance world that I'm involved in. It's a it's a bubble. So a lot of the stuff that I think is fairly common now, it's not common at all. It's it sounds still like science fiction to people. Oh yeah. But the world, you know, that we exist in, this is just everyday stuff that we talk about every every time. So I, I, I can hear those because they have therapists, they have much more compassion and empathy. And right. they have the ability to see the world through the lens of whoever they're talking to. For sure. Yeah, I think that's a huge piece of it. Um, so th though MVP type things are what I suggest for people mm -hmm. in those six areas. It's a really good baseline um, as far as um, starting to heal your brain um, and work with your brain. That's really, really one of the best things that you could do. Those six things. So something for your mind, something for getting good sleep, uh, nutrition, exercise, social connection and play. Um, that's a really good baseline to and having MVPs and habits and routines. That's where I suggest people start. Um, and then checking in with yourself as far as uh, are there habits, patterns, routines, are there beliefs that you have that are in the way? Have you been in uh, multiple uh, crappy relationships? Have you been in multiple uh, uh, jobs that you hate or that you burn out? Or do you have this achiever that pushes you? Like, are you more anxious than other people? And really just kind of starting to check in on some of the, those things mm -hmm. um, as you're healing your body. Um, and then I suggest finding someone who's trained in internal family systems or somatic experiencing or um, something like that to help with um, releasing some of those things and working through some of those things um, that may be stuck or stored in their body. Well, I, I love that. I think that's a great way to end this. You know, we um, we started with nanotechnology way yeah. in the future, and then we ended with some very practical steps that everyone could do. So that's a perfect way that I, I can't even take credit for. I think that's a, that's a perfect way to, to end this. Um, thank you so much. I really enjoyed this conversation. Um, I'm pretty sure we'll be talking in the future again as, as this stuff advances as, as and as the work you're doing continue to evolve and everything. So for now, though, um, what are some places where are some places that listeners can keep up with you? Yeah, for sure. Mind Brain Body Lab uh, at Mind Brain Body Lab everywhere. Like any social media you can you can, you can look at. Uh, that's where we're at. Um, and if they want to reach out to me, it's just Cody at MindBrainBodyLab.com. Um, if they want to reach out to me directly, otherwise, social media is the best place to get start getting some of our content and stuff. 
Perfect. And I will have all of that in the show notes so you can catch that whenever uh, that you have an opportunity to. And until next time, everyone, stay awesome, be limitless, and as always, go be the CEO of your health and your life. Peace. Peace.